So, I want to get into a message, as I mentioned, called Theodicy, uh, the problem of evil or solving the problem of evil. We don't solve the problem of evil, but we can see how God solves the problem of evil. And I wanted to address this because uh, just recently, a somewhat popular professing Christian artist, at least he was a professing Christian some time back, apparently he hasn't really been a follower of Christ for quite a while, he's been kind of faking it, and that's what a lot of people do, you know. And then finally he came out and said, yeah, I'm not really a Christian. And uh, I'm talking about Jonathan Steingard. He was the lead singer of Hawk Nelson. He wasn't the original lead singer. He came later on after uh, that one had, was no longer leading the band. And uh, he came out recently basically attacking uh, Christ or, his, or Christianity. And what Jesus had done on the cross is not really being needed, you know. And actually saying he's an atheist now, you know. Uh, even Bart Ehrman, who is one of the greatest critics of Christianity, has said it's, you really can't be an atheist because how could you know there's no God, you know? Uh, he admits that, you know? So, uh, but Steingart has kind of gone on the offensive, you know? Uh, go, going from professing to be a Christian publicly for quite a long time, even saying he was never really a Christian maybe, you know? Never really believed at one point. Uh, but then at the same time saying, oh, I had spiritual lyrics because I was, I mean, he says some things that seem pretty contradictory. And I pray and hope that God reaches him because he's in huge trouble. I feel really, really, really bad for this guy. Because one thing to reject the revelation of God who shows himself so clearly through the things that he's made all around us. And he's written his moral law in our hearts, you know. Uh, in fact, when you read the Bible, you start seeing things like, wow, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not cover your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not, you know, all of a sudden say, oh, that's all brand new material to me. Had no idea these things were wrong. No, usually it's like, yeah, because God's moral law is written where? In our hearts. Most people agree with that. And because we're made in God's image. So there's evidence for God with regard to conscience. Conscience means with knowledge, we have a moral sense of right and wrong. God gives us clear details in his word by far. And then he gives us a plan of his redemption. And he makes himself evident in so many ways so I feel very sad for this guy because Jesus warned about those who would love darkness more than light. and Their deeds would be evil because they would be attracted to such darkness more than light. But I also feel sorry for him because Jesus said it's better that a large millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown in the depths of the sea than that you lead just one little one astray. And right now he's actively seeking to lead many, many people astray. And that's why the Bible says, let not many of you be teachers, for teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Okay, I know that before I come at the pulpit, I don't dare come up here without praying. I often seek God many times before I come in the pulpit to teach uh, because I know I'm going to incur a stricter judgment. I don't, I'm not like, oh, hey, I want to be a teacher. I want to be great. No, man, I, it was put on my heart not long after I was a Christian that I need to witness the lost, do that right away. And then also I realized how much ignorance there was about who Jesus was and even in the church and and. God burned it upon my heart to share his truth and put a burden for, on my heart for people to know his word and to grow in grace and, and to know him. And so for me, it was, like, it was like when Paul says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. That's how it was for me. So when I look at James 3.1, you know, not, not many of you seek to be teachers because uh, you will uh, incur a stricter judgment. I knew for sure that I had been called to teach. But I also knew and still know that I have a great responsibility for God. It just so happens that musicians end up being teachers 
teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the scriptures say in the book of Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. So a lot of times musicians are put in front of people and they're teaching people through their lyrics, but they don't know God. They're up there because they want to be worshipped. Not all of them, but many contemporary professing Christian artists for many, many years. I mean, there's, there are people in the uh, contemporary Christian music scene that'll say, yeah, there's a lot of these guys that don't follow Christ. A lot of them aren't believers. A lot of them are doing drugs. A lot of them are chasing women. A lot of them are living just wicked lives. You don't always know who they are. So what happens is when some of them come out and say, well, I reject because they want to do their own thing or whatever. I don't know where exactly this guy is. I just know the Bible warns in the last days there'd be a fallen away. Many would depart from the faith. Uh, I also know the scriptures say they won't endure sound doctrine in the end. But when you put these people on stage, what happens when it comes to Christian musicians, oftentimes they end up being worshipped. I mean, little girls lose their braces, you know, when they cheer different pop artists. And what happens, that gets translated into the Christian church to where all of a sudden there's a lot of emotionalism involved and they just basically hang their heart on a certain Christian artist because they were touched by a certain song or certain melody, you know, or certain lyric. And before they know it, that person is departing from the faith and having an influence on who knows how many people. So this is very, very, very serious. And I want to encourage you, uh, if you're a younger person, make sure your faith is in Christ and not in an artist. The Bible says, cursed is the one who puts his trust in a man. You, you have to put your trust in the Lord alone. That way when a man falls, whether he is a professing Christian leader or singer, or whether he's a professing Christian pastor such as myself or anyone else, then when they fall away, your faith isn't shaken because your faith isn't in them. Amen? And you hold God's word above their word. So when I see this guy's words and how, you know, basically I can see this guy, you know, even though he's... He's, at least he's being honest about saying he hasn't been a Christian for a long time and he was being phony about it, you know? Because when I see his arguments, it, looked like he, it looks like he's been listening to atheists and just regurgitating old, already destroyed atheistic arguments against the existence of God. Easily, I'm kind of embarrassed. I hate to I have to be honest though. I'm looking at his arguments. I'm like, wow, these are like third grade arguments, man. You know, they're, they're weak arguments. I just feel sorry for the guy because he's just in such darkness, so, Father, I pray in your son's name that you'd reach this man before it's too late, before he goes into a Christless eternity rejecting you, and you would draw him back to yourself or to know you for the first time. Father, I don't know if he ever knew you or not. I know your word says that people can forget that they were purified from their past sins, so they certainly knew you, and others, Father, never knew you, but you know, and that's what matters, Father, is you get his attention and you bring him back to yourself. And that you'd help him hate the sin and the darkness that he's living in now. And that he fully embrace your gospel in Jesus Christ. In your son's name I pray. So he says, one of the things he says, and he's making basically, now if this guy was saying, hey, I'm really struggling. I'm struggling. I'm having doubts about God. You know, uh, please pray for me and so forth. My tone would be way different. But he's actually going on the rampage attacking God and his word. Okay, that's why this is serious. And that's why we need to actually deal with what he's saying because he's on the attack. And he says, if God is all loving and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? One of his statements. If God is all loving and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Now, the scriptures are very, very clear why there's evil in the world. And the scriptures don't have problems with these propositions because the Bible is very clear that God is almighty God, Amen. 
that is all powerful. We say God is all powerful. We're not saying that he can do evil. He can do anything that's inconsistent with his nature. God, there are certain things God will not do. God cannot lie, the Bible says. Amen. The Bible says in the scripture that God cannot deny himself. The Bible says that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt any man. There are certainly things that God can't do that are inconsistent with his nature, but he can do all things that are consistent with his nature, and he can do everything and anything in the universe he wants to do that's not contrary to his holy and righteous and pure nature. And uh, the, the, the rules of logic that he has given us and the laws of physics he's given us. In fact, he can do whatever he wants with regard to the laws of physics for the most part because he's invented physics, amen? So he can even break laws and suspend laws that we see in the physical world. They're called miracles, you know? And I'm not here to address all those lines. We are here more to address this question. The former lead singer of Hawk Nelson, Jonathan Steingard, second lead singer in the band, I think, uh, said, if God is all loving and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? That has been said by every atheist, <laughs> you know, ad agnosium, ad infinitum since time immemorial, you know. Uh, by the way, for centuries, it wasn't until more recently, relatively speaking, that when people experienced evil, they didn't wonder if God existed or not. They just tried to understand what God's plan was. But now we're dealing with a, a state of people not even want to know there's a God or believe there's a God now. And the Bible says, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we've reached an age of foolishness in our world where people wanted, and we have more evidence for God than ever, you know, through DNA and, you know, just mind-boggling, getting to know the cell and, and, and you know, molecules and atoms and, and the design of nature. So there's more evidence than ever, so it's actually... It's more reprehensible that people would deny his existence than ever before. So I want to address some of these things. I want to address uh, these propositions. Although the way he, Steingard, presents his argument is just parroting what arguments have been out there. I want to give a little bit more sophisticated argument, not from Steingard, but from, uh, you, know, an, you know, atheistic philosophers that would, you know, contradict the belief in theistic philosophers or those who believe in the existence of God, not just Christians, but... Uh, the majority of people by far and away uh, believe in the existence of God. I think over 90% of the people on the planet, even with all the propaganda, which shows you how powerful the evidence for God is. So uh, it's supposedly hard to believe. If, if you understand God, is, now understand their argument, okay? Because you're going to have to address this argument. We're supposed to always be ready to give an answer for anybody that asks us about the hope that's in us, Amen. So when someone gives you an argument like this and they begin to, and it sounds like this guy was, you know, looking for fuel to try to deny God's existence because he didn't just come up with these things. He's repeating what's been said, as I mentioned, over and over again. But uh, an argument by J.L. Mackey, okay, is that God must be either impotent, ignorant, or wicked. Okay, he has to be either impotent, not all powerful, ignorant, not all knowledgeable, or wicked, not all righteous. In fact, wicked. Uh, and his point is this, and listen to uh, the propositions that are given. And on, f and, and on face value, it seems like a powerful argument, okay? It's going to seem like a powerful argument until you really look closely at it and you look at it biblically, okay? You, sh you know, you'd probably be able to see through it pretty quick, okay? The first proposition, and all-powerful, meaning omnipotent, God could prevent evil from existing in the world. 
Okay, that's the first proposition. An all-powerful God could prevent evil from existing in the world. We would agree that that's true. He could if he, if he willed it and he divinely decreed that there would be no evil in the world. He could have made the world differently, amen? We would agree with that, right? In fact, how did he make Eden? Was there sin in Eden? No, he did make. Why did he make a perfect world? He did. He made Eden, amen? There was no sin at one time. Okay, but it, so it's true. A perfect God could prevent evil from existing in the world. And he could have simply prevented evil from existing in the world by simply not giving Adam and Eve free will, right? Could have just made them robots. So he could have done that. We agree with that. Number two, an all-knowing, not just an all-powerful God now, but an all-knowing, an omniscient God would know that there was evil in the world. Would you agree with that? Yeah. An all-knowing God would know that there is evil in the world. Amen? We agree with that proposition. Number three, an all-good, not just now an all-powerful God, not just now an all-knowing you know, God, an omniscient God, but now an all-good, an omnibenevolent God. An omnibenevolent or all-good God would wish to prevent evil from existing in the world. Catch that one? Catch that one? An all-good or omnibenevolent God would wish to prevent evil from existing in the world. You have to follow all three of them to understand the sense that, that the power of the propositions, at least in the atheist mind. An all-powerful God would be able to prevent evil from being in the world. An all-knowing God would know that there was evil in the world. An all-good God would wish to prevent evil from existing in the world. Number four, there is evil in the world. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's evil in the world. So the point is, if God's all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, there should not be evil in the world. And since there is evil in the world, he's either not all-good or he's just not all-knowing, like open theism, you know, or, you know, he's just not all-good, not all-powerful, not all-knowing, not all-good. You have to give up one of those. If you have to give up one of those, by the way, if you give up one of those, let's say you feel like you're, it's checkmate, I've got to give up one of those propositions. That doesn't destroy theism, amen? How do we know God's character is good? Well, I believe we do know it's good. But you can, or how do we know he's all-powerful? Or how do we know he's all-knowing? So what happens with the, when these propositions are made, the atheist says, checkmate, there can be no God. And anybody with half a brain cell realize that doesn't mean there's no God. That just means your proposition gives what you think is evidence to say the Christian God or the biblical God doesn't exist because he's presented as all-powerful. Amen? Almighty God, as all-knowing. Okay, he knows the beginning from the end from the beginning. He declare amen. Or you have to give up, according to them, I don't believe you have to give up any of these. By the way, this is, this is just a bunch of junk, as you'll see in a minute. It's, it's philosophical gibberish, does not stand the test of the word of God, does not stand the test of reality. And the propositions are stacked in such a way that he's hoping, if, he, if Matthew's thought this through, he's hoping you don't see a glaring problem of fly in the ointment of the argumentation. And by the way, this is not just, this isn't Mackey's propositions specifically. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm using some of the wording that's used uh, today, but these four propositions together have been used for years. But my point is, when we look at it more closely, you don't have to give up one of the propositions. So my first point is, if you had to give up one of the propositions, you could still believe in God. You just could question whether he's all-powerful, all-knowing, or 
if he is all righteous. My point is you don't have to give up any of those. And we'll see. Because the biblical God is presented differently than here. Wait, you're saying the, the, the biblical God is differently than in these propositions? There's certainly in the world, evil in the world, so what proposition is different? Well, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is omnibenevolent, so he's omniscient, okay? All-knowing, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he is omnibenevolent, all-knowing. Well, isn't that what he said? Isn't that the propositions he's going by? No. There's one of those propositions that's, that's stated a certain way to hedge his argument, which veers away from Scripture. I'll wait till the end to reveal it and get more, deeper into that, okay? Because I've got it right here, which proposition it is, and I thought, nah, you know, I'll get to it a little bit later. But let me just say this. Let me deal with the problem of evil a little bit because this is what... This poor guy, you know, uh, Steingard is his name, former lead singer of uh, Hawk Nelson. This is what this uh, poor guy is saying. Hey, if God's all powerful and all good, you know, how can there be evil in the world? Well, let's start to answer that, okay? Let's start to answer that. I, I think there's a huge irony here because for me, the problem of evil is one of the strong evidences of Christianity, okay? That's what blows me away. If some Christians are like, or atheists are like, well, Christians have a hard time dealing with the problem of evil. Or some, you know, agnostics like Bart Ehrman. This, was the, this is the greatest question that Christians and everybody will have to ask. Why is there evil in the world, you see? And that's how his faith began to unravel Bart Ehrman's, you know, he says. And for me, it's like, wow, my understanding and my experiences is the total opposite. Because my conversion was a result of having to answer the question as to why is there evil in the world. And I found by far and away that Christianity has by far the most explanatory power in satisfying sufficiently the question as to why there's evil in the world. In atheism, it's not even a, a, really an issue. As an atheist, you can't say, why is there evil in the world? Because as an atheist, you don't believe in objective good. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in a creator. You don't believe in, in, in true good and evil. What exists just simply exists, you know. It's the result of fortuitous random chance, the beginning of the, the universe, out of nothing that just came and whatever happens, happens. If a guy becomes a serial murderer, so what? It's not good. It's not evil. It just is, you know. We just go according to our DNA or according to our random molecules and so forth. I mean, I could quote and I don't have time to, but I can give you quote after quote by the author of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, who just talks about that. We just basically, you know, go by our genes, you know, and it's just all happenstance. And I can point out to you that one eighth, I could, all kinds of atheists, I can quote, who says everything's just determined. You know, there's no real morality. You know, there's real, no real meaning, they say so often. There's no real purpose because at the bottom of it all, how is there any objective good or evil? So guess what? Atheists have no explanation when it comes to dealing with evil. There's something way beyond survival of the fittest going on. You have an animal that'll kill another animal. You don't usually say, man, I can't believe, you know, that leopard took down that gazelle and is eating it. That's evil. No, you wouldn't say that. You would say it's hungry. It's got to eat. But when you have a guy like Adolf Hitler 
not having to kill to eat, but murdering six million Jews in a bloodbath and going into 20 different countries to find more Jews just to kill them, right? And trying to, and wishing to kill every Jew on the planet. We're talking about something incredibly malignant. We're talking about malevolence that goes beyond our wildest nightmares. We're talking about Adolf Hitler and his closest, some of the closest people to him, talking about there were these demonic type presences. He was hearing voices, and there was such, there was this intense power that would, would engulf him. And we're talking about demonic power. Atheism cannot explain the powers of darkness that virtually every civilization has encountered through history. Principalities and powers, the dark forces. Atheism has no explanation for spiritual evil or moral evil because there are no real morals and right and wrong when it comes to atheism. Not objectively speaking. You have no objective thing good to measure what evil is because your opinion is good as someone else's. And basically you're just explaining one reality. That's a result of an explosion out of nothingness, which is ridiculous. By the way, nothing can explode because it doesn't exist. That's what atheism teaches happened. So as we look at this, for me personally, when I was atheistic or agnostic, I would, I would have called myself an agnostic atheist. I rejected the God of the Bible. I rejected the creator of all things in that sense. But I believe there was something beyond me. I knew there was something bigger than me. And I don't know exactly what it was, but I rejected the God of the Bible. And I personally opened myself up through rejecting and rebelling against God a very, 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 very demonic forces that before I had encountered them, I would have said, oh, I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe in demons and evil spirits until I encountered them. Then I encountered some incredibly wicked entities. And I don't have time to get into my testimony and everything. I'm just going to say this. Very, very real. And as I went through it, I began to realize something. Wow, I'm opening myself up because I did it through occult-type practices. Thinking I was just getting in touch with my subconscious mind, but I realized I got in touch with some very angry, evil entities that were bent on, and they were, I was channeling lyrics, demonic lyrics and everything, very poetic, you know, way beyond what I could even write right now, you know. And guess what? When I cried out to God, because then I began to realize, wait a minute, if there is spiritual evil and it's evil and it's destructive and it's trying to use me, I began to realize it's not my subconscious mind. And I cried out to God, guess what I realized? That there is a good God because he stepped in and delivered me. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, amen. I cried out to God, boom, he saved me and delivered me from my experiences. Like, wow. And it didn't only show me that it was good, but also showed me that he was powerful, amen, because he had more power than the devil. And my life was transformed. I began, and then I opened up his word thinking, man, this book that Satan had hated, I knew the spirits I was in touch with hated God's word because they, 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 I was becoming more and more antichrist as I was getting initiated by these entities into the new age, into the occult and stuff I was writing. I realized, wow, they're anti-God. I wrote a book called Your God is Your Myth, Your Myth is Your God. I'm sorry, a song about Your God is Your Myth, Your Myth is Your God, and so forth. And push a lot of occult teachings, and all of a sudden I realized, wow, it's this book. And I opened this book, and I realized, wow, this is the God that's delivered me. Because I began to see all these prophecies that were fulfilled. And then not in, only in the past being fulfilled regarding Israel and Christ and the promise of the Messiah, but in, in our daily living, watching life unfold before me. And so many other evidences, right? 
But guess what I found in this book, man? The explanation for the problem of evil. So the irony is, when I hear people talk about, well, Christianity has a hard time dealing with the problem of evil, I'm like, what are you talking about? The Satan would like you to think that. We have the best explanation, but I can't find a better, I don't know of any better explanation for the problem of evil than God's word in Christianity. Atheism can't explain it. Agnosticism, based on being the word, you know, agnosticism comes from the word ignoramus, from, from ignorance, okay? So they don't have answers. They're ignorant about God, whether he exists or not. They don't have the answers for evil. So guess what? Let's, let's look at some of this. Let's get deeper and deeper into this. Now, I think it's important to understand that when I, be, then I, as a new Christian, I began reading this book, and I started to realize, wow, God created the universe. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And Jesus talked about a rebellion that began in the very beginning. He said in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan is the father of lies and that he sinned from the beginning. Okay? First John says that as well. And Jesus talked about how Satan did not remain in the truth. Okay? And the scriptures reveal in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan rebelled and the scriptures make it clear that he brought a third of the angels with him in his rebellion at least. So Satan and the angels fell, they rebelled, and that rebellion was manifested among the human race. When God created Eden and he created the first human beings, he didn't want robots. It's that easy. It's pretty easy to understand. Can you imagine if your kids were just all robots? Things would be easier around the house. Kids or grandkids, right? Make your bed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> be like pretty, pretty easy. Some days you probably wish they were, you know, can they be robots just for a day, you know? And uh, can you go, can you wash the car? Thank you. Can you rub daddy's feet? Yes, I will do that. Will you love to do it? I will love to do it. No, <laughs> that's not how it works, guys. Okay. Uh, we're, not, we're not robots. And if God wanted robots, he would be alone in his universe. Uh, he still have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, Amen. He'd be perfectly happy, but God is by nature, he is love. He, God is love. It says that twice, 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16. God, he wants to share with us. He wants to, he creates us in his image. And because we bear his image, we have free will. We have choice. Now keep in mind, as soon as God, that, did God want us to love us or not? Does God want us to love him or not? What's the greatest commandment of all that Jesus say? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with what? All thy heart, soul, mind, strength. So his greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love him with everything we are. He wants that because he wants a relationship with us. Amen. Now God could have said, hey, I'm just going to create robots, but he wouldn't have a relationship with us. But he wanted us to know him and to choose to love him because he wanted us to experience his love. But he also wants us to reciprocate his love and respond to him and so he can have a relationship with us. Because the Bible says if two uh, are not in agreement, how can they walk together? So we have a choice. That the very idea of choice to love or not love necessitates good and evil. Because evil is defined as breaking God's moral law. That's what it is. So as soon as God creates people in his image with the capacity and potentiality to be loved and reciprocate that love by choice, he also creates the potentiality for sin, evil, and rebellion. He can choose whether or not 
by making a world whether he wants to make a world that allows for those potentialities. God and his great wisdom. And the more I look at his plan, I have no problem with it from the very get-go. But the more I've looked at it throughout the years, the more I just shake my hand and say, man, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot begin to improve on the plan that he has to have a people in eternity with him that love him and have gone through a probation period to show whether they're going to choose him or not. That would be with him forever. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. So he is truly good. So we have the beginning of evil, and we have people that have chosen to be evil. So Christianity has an understanding of the origin of evil. Now, there's a lot of suffering in the world, but there's suffering for different reasons. A lot of times people just want to say, oh, suffering, you know, it's because of this, or it's because of that, you know? And the word faith movement, the prosperity movement, it's because you don't have enough faith. Oh, that's why people suffer, something like that. But the Bible is quite a bit more sophisticated than that. It's God's word. He explains that sometimes they're suffering because people are justly being punished. There are all kinds of people in prison right now, justly so. There are people also that are justly punished by God. Some are punished now. Some are punished, it says, in the hereafter. Sometimes there's suffering in the world because God uses suffering to make us like gold. Amen. To, to work in our lives redemptively. Redemptive suffering, we call that. Sometimes it's a result of the dark, evil forces that are arrayed against us, which I've already talked about. Okay? A lot of times there's suffering in the world because we disobey God's word that commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, we could squash, since we're dealing with diseases right now with COVID-19, you know, we could have squashed malaria a long time ago. There's plenty of uh, ability to just destroy malaria all around the world. If people loved each other enough to take the time to transport vaccines and, uh, and pay the cost for those who don't have the ability or don't have the money or what have you. So there's a ton of suffering going on in the world that doesn't have to go on because us humans choose evil. Don't blame God for human evil or human lack of love. Okay? Well, what about the hundred plus million people that died in the last century? Yeah. Under Hitler, an occultist, right? Under Stalin in Soviet Union, an atheist. Under Chairman Mao in China, another atheist. Another uh, Pol Pot in the killing fields of Cambodia, another atheist. You get over 100 million with those guys easy, by the way. Occultists and atheists. And Hitler wanted to replace Christ. If you even move Hitler out of the picture, you still get over 100 million just with the communist regimes pretty much. And that's human evil. And someone will say, well, what about natural evil? That's not even connected to free will. Oh, yeah, it is. God's the first world that God created for us was Eden. Amen? And what was the result of human rebellion against God? Thorns and thistles came up. There was mutation in nature. The Bible says all of creation groans to be delivered. And it's as a result of human sin. That there's cosmic disturbances and there's judgments. And, and there's uh, and God at work in humanity seeking to use what Satan meant for evil. And what mankind, many of them, have meant for evil, to still redeem people and save them in spite of, of evil. So it's interesting. Uh, we need to take these points into existence. And this is interesting because I think it's uh, very, 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 very important that you and I realize that if you took free will away, just say you took, took it all the way away right now from everybody, Man, well, if God could have just taken Hitler's free will away, and if he could have just taken Mao and Stalin's and Pol Pot's and, 
And basically, you'd have to take everybody's free will away because guess what? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <laughs> the wage of sin is death, it says. There's none righteous, no, not one, amen? Jesus said out of the heart comes evil thoughts and fornications and, and blasphemies and all these things, foolish talk and all these things. So guess what? All of us have evil. So if you want to eradicate free will, you eradicate all human beings or you decapacitate them from being able to choose because everyone has chosen evil. That's what the scriptures are clear about that. And that's basically, you know, when you talk to people, they'll basically admit that they've sinned. The Bible says, whoever says he's without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. The problem with atheism, though, in those propositions is it ignores the God of the Bible and the bigger picture. In fact, I look at those, I'm like, Wow, these four propositions, the way they're pointed out, cannot somebody just see they're sophomoric? Um, and these are considered the greatest propositions by atheistic philosophers, by the way. But you look at them, it's like, really? That's why the Bible warns against being entangled or led astray by the philosophies of men, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Think about this for a minute. Think about a man goes by a window and he sees this man just torturing this little boy. And he's like, I can't believe what he's doing, man. And he catches him in the act. He can't, he's hammering the window, but the guy's back is turned. He's trying to get him to stop. He can't stop it. And he's, he feels, this guy's he's ripping this boy apart one part of the time. And he's ripping his, trying to rip a tooth out. And the boy's in incredible pain, just crying. And then he's crying. It looks like the boy's crying to somebody he knows for help. And then he looks and the boy's crying. And he sees him crying to his dad. Because he can hear a little bit. He's like, Daddy! And daddy's like, just standing there. He can't believe his dad is, I can't believe this guy's doing this. I can't believe the dad is allowing it. Sick. Terrible. What kind of dad allows evil? What kind of father allows evil? And guess what, man? He finds a door because he can't find any door on that side of the building. He runs across, gets in there, breaks in, grabs the gun out of his car. Boom, 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 boom. Kills the dude that was pulling his tooth out. He looks at the dad. He goes, how could you let your son go through that? What kind of loving dad would allow his son to go through that? The dad says, you just murdered a dentist. And all of a sudden it's like, what? Yeah, that's our dentist. I wanted to do something, but I couldn't. I, I, I was dying watching him get his tooth pulled out, but I knew it was for the good. And I knew I had to allow this suffering because he's got some pretty bad teeth because, you know, I've I kind of been negligent as a dad. I leave him a lot of sweets and, you know, but you just killed the dentist. Cops come. Does he say the dad's evil? Arrest him. No, dad wasn't evil. The dentist was evil. No, he's been murdered. Guess what? You just murdered the dentist. That guy goes way in handcuffs. Why? Because he only had a limited amount of information and in his rush to judgment, he acted rashly. And guess what? How can, now if that can happen with regard to a dentist and a dad and a boy and a homicidal man who didn't intend to kill and he can make such a mistake, right? How much more of a mistake is it to presume that you know everything about the universe and everything about the way God made the universe and therefore could pontificate and pronounce judgment on God when you see, the Bible says we see through a glass darkly. We don't see the whole picture, amen? So just jump to a conclusion that God's, God's doing something wrong. He can't be all-powerful, all-knowing, okay, and omnibenevolent and still allow evil. 
He most certainly can. Ooh, you might see what proposition, you might see the proposition right now as I'm talking where the weakness lies in these four propositions where it breaks down, okay? Because we have to be careful that we don't jump to a conclusion about God. And God's word is very, very clear. It's very, very clear that uh, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Paul says, when I was a child, I thought I was a child, you know. But he said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And he's talking about the gifts, whether there be tongues and prophecies, they will cease, right? But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So right now, we just see in part. We see through a glass darkly. And in biblical times, their mirrors weren't so hot. They weren't those, you know, sandy, sand on the back of the, the glass to where you just see this acute, you know, very, uh, not cute, acute reflection. And you're like, ah, oh, so clear. No, in those days, they, you know, it would be like polished brass or whatever. You could see a bit of yourself, but you saw yourself dimly. And the Bible compares that to how the big picture right now, even us Christians don't see the whole picture. We see enough to say yes and amen and praise God, we trust you. So if we don't see the whole picture and we have revelation knowledge from Genesis to Revelation from God, certainly the atheist who rejects God's revelation sees far less, okay? And, but he's going to jump to conclusion, popping off these propositions when those propositions, I'm telling you right now, those propositions do not accurately assess who God defines himself to be. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So, it's important to understand. Yes, indeed, we do see through a glass darkly. Now, but by the way, I should say this too. When Paul says, right now we see in part, but he says, but when that which is perfect is come, then we shall see face to face. So right now we only see in part. We don't understand. And a lot of things are very painful. Suffering is very, very painful. All of us have gone through it and we will continue to go through some of it. But eventually we'll see face to face. We'll see very clear, you know, face to face. And it says, we'll know as we are known. That blows me away. So we'll know fully everything that God wants to know. We will know as we are known. Okay. So that's, that's exciting. And that's why you have to be very humble about how many of you, let's just be honest, how many of you have seen certain things and you've drawn wrong conclusions about people, about events, about circumstances? Can anybody lift their hand with me? Okay. Only my wife's not going to raise her hand? Oh, there it is, baby. Thank you. I know you're, 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 you're got, you have good insight, but all of us, right? Anyway, uh, we all make those mistakes sometimes on a daily basis, right? We jump to a conclusion. That's why we warn, don't be judgmental. There's a difference between discerning and being judgmental. Amen? Discerning, you, you want to be a discerning person. You don't want to be, no, you have to make judgments, but let them be within the, 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 the course of discerning good and evil so you can make right decisions. But don't be a person that's constantly trying to put people down and trying to put yourself above other people and competing with believers and envying one another. The Bible says, the Bible says, don't, you know, challenge each other. We're supposed to love one another. Amen? Doesn't mean things don't need to be corrected. They do at times but we want to be discerning people. But I found that people that are judgmental often jump to, I'm talking about have a judgmental attitude. That's, that's instead of, and we have to have some judgment, but it should be done in love, amen? Every, let everything be done in love, the Bible says, amen? It says be discerning in your love in Philippians. So we're supposed to have discernment in our love. You don't throw out being, you don't throw out judgments, you don't throw out love, you put them together, amen? 
and that creates for healthy walk. But you want to make sure you operate that way because if judgmentalism is the main characteristic that you're known for and you live that way, it's going to be hard to be around. You're not going to be constructive. You're going to end up being destructive to degree. You're going to be kind of proud and then you got to be careful because pride goes before fall and then you're going to have a lot of pain in your Christian walk. Make sure you're walking in love toward people. You're praying for people, amen? Encouraging each other, being patient with each other. And yeah, if your brother has a speck in his eye, make sure you take the beam out of your eye first if you have one so you can take out the speck gently because if there's a beam in your eye, you're going to poke his eye out because you can't see to take the, the speck out. So Jesus wants to, us to make sure that we walk in love. But if you and I, not to get you know, off on a tangent, but something a little bit practical for us in our walks. But Jesus wants us to make sure if, if we're going to be, how many people, if we're going to make mistakes in assessing situations very easily in this world, how much more when we're talking about judging the God of the universe? Remember Job? Job was, you know, Satan thought he could get Job to curse God and die. He couldn't. But Job began to question God. And then what did God do in chapter 38 through 42 when he appears to Job in a whirlwind? He basically says, do you even know who I am? You know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, remember that? When the sons of God sang and the angels, you know, sons of God shouted for joy and the, and the morning stars sang. Where were you? And he gives this litany of things that he did. And Job like puts his hand over his mouth and says, I repent. In other words, God's point is, Job, you know, you're just a little tiny guy. You see a little bit of the picture. Be careful. You don't jump to judgment, especially against me. And then you know what he says to Job? Will you try to justify yourself by condemning me? And that's what I see many people like this guy, Steingard is his name, from Hawk Nelson doing. How could God, if he's a loving God and all-powerful, allow evil? What's he doing? He wants to justify not walking with God and obeying his commands by condemning God. And that's serious stuff, folks. And false doctrine and these kinds of things can spread like a cancer because guess what? There'll be other people that, well, that sounds good. I can maybe reject the light and not have to really follow this narrow path. And I can explore the broad path and that leads to destruction. But they don't want, no, no. They don't want to explain it that way. They'll say, I just want to do what I want, you know, and not be restricted by Christianity and, oh, you know, and on and on. So, guys, you got to be really, really, really careful here. Uh, the Lord God tells us that he takes evil and what Satan means for evil and men mean for evil and turns it to good. Remember Joseph? Uh, when I look at the suffering in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the two guys that suffered the most were who? Joseph and Job. Joseph and Job. Now, if there's another guy that you think surpassed those two in suffering, let me know, because I might be missing it. But when I look at both of them, I know that Job, Job said, when God gets done with me, I know I'll come forth like gold, Amen. He trusted God for the big picture. And Joseph said in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, and he said a very similar statement elsewhere. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for what? Good. So we start to realize that God allows evil temporarily to bring forth a greater good. You start to realize, okay, wait a minute. Maybe there's something wrong with that third proposition. That's where the problem lies. And I'll get back to the third proposition in a moment. You know, one of the things the Steingard fellow says, which like a lot of atheists say is, you know, why is there hell? You know, why would God allow for hell or why would God create a hell? But you guys, basically, hell is a place of outer darkness, okay? 
It's a place of separation from God and the light of God and the holy city outside of the dogs, you know, the, 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 you know, the idolaters, those who practice witchcraft, the, you know, and so forth. It gives a list of the abominable. But understand this. Who is God? God is life. Amen. In Christ is life and he's the light of men. Jesus is the, said, I am the way, the what? Truth and the what? Life. First John chapter 1 says he is the eternal life. First John chapter 5 at the very end says Christ is the eternal life. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 12, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. So when you come to Jesus and Jesus comes and offers himself to us, he's offering us and he calls us first, right? He's offering us what? His life. His love. God is love. Amen. His peace. His joy. Amen. So we came to Jesus. We were able to experience love. How many have experienced love of God? Amen. Peace. Forgiveness, right? Peace with God. Forgiveness, right? Joy, right? Peace, love, joy. It's beautiful. Amen. Now, when Jesus comes and says, come to me, and we reject God, we say, I want nothing to do with you, we reject love, we reject peace, we reject joy. Amen? So he gives us a choice because he didn't want robots, as we said. So when you say, I don't want anything to do with God, then you're saying, I don't want anything to do with the source of all love and peace and joy. Amen? So that's a choice God lets you make. And he'll, he'll acquiesce. He'll say yes to your choice. Okay. But that's not his first plan. It says of the lawyers and the, and, and the scribes in Luke 7.30, it says they set, it says John came baptized, you know, that all would be baptized through his ministry, right? That's what it says. And it says, but they rejected John's baptism and they set aside God's purpose for them. So God's first purpose is what? Our salvation. How many times do I quote these scriptures? And I won't quote them all now, but I quote scriptures where God doesn't will that any would perish, but that all would what? Come to repentance, right? God wills that all be saved, come to knowledge of the truth, and I'm gonna, I better stop myself. There's so many verses like that. There's some of my favorite verses because I quote them so often because it so often shows the character and the love of God. And I know hate, Satan hates those verses and he hates that aspect of God. He doesn't want you to think of God like that. But guess what? God is like that. Amen. All day long, he says, I stretched out my hands to a gainsaying people. That's in Isaiah, where he says he would have chosen, he chose life for them, but they chose destruction. So his first will is that we would be saved. But there's antecedent, a subsequent will. He wants us to be saved, but if you're going to reject him and reject the love and reject the light and reject the joy and reject all these heavenly things, guess what's left? He'll say, okay, you can go into darkness then. He created us eternal beings. We have eternal souls. He says, if you're going to choose darkness, he lets you make that choice. That's why there's a hell. And it's interesting because the scriptures talk about how in Revelation 22, let the wicked be wicked still. God says, okay, they're going to die wicked. And by the way, it's like, some people think God's going to be wringing his hands like, oh, I just wish they would have turned. They didn't come and he's going to be sad for eternity. No, because guess what? Anything lovable in a person that God made in his image that reflects him is extinguished more and more through rebellion as they're given over more and more to darkness. And it says in the Psalms, as a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Wow. 
That means people will become so wicked and so contrary to God. Think of in Revelation when he brings judgment on the beast worshipers. They worship the beast who's empowered by Satan and they worship the image of the beast and they take his number or his name on the right hand or forehead. So they're identifying with the image of the beast and rejecting Jesus Christ, the image of the one true God. And they're saying, this is who we want. This is who we will be like. And the more they become like the beast, the more they become like the devil. So when God judges people in the end and he throws people in the lake of fire and they're separated with him forever, it's like throwing Satan and the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire because these are people that are called children of Satan at that point. Trying to get you to understand how this works. So it's not that God's wringing his hand like, oh, I couldn't save them. They didn't come. And there's a time, he weeps over Jerusalem, right? He does hurt when people reject the love that could be theirs. But then when they continue to get darker and darker and darker, it says, literally it says in Scripture that they quote in Hosea 9.10, they become as detestable as the things that they loved. Wow. So those who worship the beast, the Antichrist, they'll become as despicable and repugnant and abominable as he is. So the people that will be suffering forever that reject Christ, you won't see as these loving, caring people that just, I wish they would have saved. No, these will be people that are just filled with hate. They won't have an ounce of love, light, peace, joy in their lives. And that's one way that that works. And I think it's important. Second Peter 2.12 says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. So it's interesting the way the Lord speaks. And, and, you know, I did a whole message on divine justice in the book of Revelation, more than one, by the way, where I have a, one message I call the righteousness of hell. The righteousness of hell. And I won't go through all the scriptures, but I point out that when it's all said and done, and we no longer are seen through a glass darkly, but the glass becomes clearer and clearer. We begin to see closer and closer, more and more face to face, even before the eternal state. We're not totally there yet at that point, but we're getting closer. In Revelation 16, you see, in Revelation 18, 17, 19, you see the angels of God. You see the host of heaven. You see the, the redeemed saints in the heavenly realm. You see them praising God because of his righteous judgments. They don't say, oh, is God righteous? I don't know. No, they all know he is. Revelation 16, I'll give you one example. Verse 6, beginning of verse 6, and I heard an angel of the water saying, righteous are you, O holy one, who is and who was, because you have brought these judgments. For they have spilled the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar reply, yes, Lord, God Almighty. So he's all powerful, but guess what? True and righteous are your judgments. True and righteous are your judgments. What are we reading here, guys? That God's almighty and his judgments are righteous and true. And it's the same God that brought judgments, but the judgments were intended also to bring them to repentance. But it says in that same chapter, they still refuse to repent. So we see God's love at work. We see God's all-powerful at work, amen? And we see his, his righteousness at work. See, we see all these things at work, and we still see evil in the world. How does that work out? Doesn't that defy one of the propositions? It defies a false proposition. What's the false proposition? Well, before I get to it, we're at the end, I'm going to get to it in a second, is... I really, really feel sorry for guys like, and I'll pray for, I'll continue to pray for this guy, John Steingarten, and I'll be praying even more for the people that he's deceiving. But my heart breaks because they have no real meaning in life. They have no real purpose in life. If you don't, if you reject the creator, you have no hope, right? Your little kid dies, how tragic and horrible that would be, right? But you, at least you know 
praise God, I can see my little child again in the future, amen? As Christians, we have this hope, amen, which should reign supreme in our hearts. They don't have that hope. So I feel bad for this guy, and I hope he makes the right choices. I pray that he would turn his heart to God. But praise God with us, and as Christians, we not only have exp- explanatory power regarding the problem of evil and suffering, we also have hope, amen? And we also fight against evil more than anybody it's Christians doing more charitable work, volunteer work around the world than any other group by far. So this third proposition. The first proposition, God is all-powerful. Yeah, true. Second proposition, God is all-knowing. Yeah, true, we affirm that. The fourth proposition, but there's evil in the world. Well, what's the third proposition? The third proposition is uh, all and all good or omni-loving or omni-benevolent God would wish to prevent evil from existing in the world. Not necessarily true. Listen to the third proposition. An all good, omnibenevolent God would wish to prevent evil from existing in the world. Not totally true. True in the eternal state, but not true in the temporal world. Amen? Just as you would say, an all loving dentist and the father of that boy would not allow that boy to be in pain in that dentist office. Wrong. Right? What if I, what if I applied that proposition to the dentist? And to the father, if that father was all loving, he would not allow his son to have his tooth yanked out. No, what if there was a greater good that he was allowing? And what even if the pain, not, and it was even deeper than just not having cavities, but going through the pain that he went through would also build character in his life and also make him a, a more wonderful person in the long run because he knew what it was to suffer. So having said that, guess what? The third proposition is bogus and All loving God may indeed, and biblically he does, allow suffering and evil in the world for a period of time because he's working out a cosmic divine formula whereby he will get a people who have been tested, have been tried, and have gone through an evil world. And guess what? Have said no to evil in the ultimate end and have said yes to Jesus and through their sufferings have been tested and tried and proved to be loyal. Thereby he gets a bride that loves him, the bride of Christ, which is one with him throughout all eternity. When Jesus comes back, what's his bride look like? Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. And with him are the called. They were called. The chosen. They were chosen. And the faithful. They were chosen because he knew they would be faithful. And he has a bride that's called, chosen, and faithful with him throughout all eternity. And guess what? You cannot be faithful if you're not tested. Amen? That's kind of how Irenaeus dealt with theodicy, the problem of evil. He talked about you really couldn't know the good. And he was onto something there. Unless there's evil and there's choice. Well, we couldn't be the bride of Christ and be faithful to him for all eternity, whereby there would be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness as the bride of Christ for all eternity if there was not testing, if there was not free will, if there was not something to prove faithful against. Are you with me? Do you see how that third proposition is bogus? Because God does allow suffering. So consider these scriptures, which underscore my point. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, though are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and boy are they higher. We don't even know where they end still, even with Hubble and all these telescopes. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Ecclesiastes chapters 3 verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Praise God. He makes everything beautiful in his time. That's his plan. So he allows evil to exist for a period of time, but there's all eternity after this world's done. And through the evil he allows for us to be tested, he gets a faithful bride. 
Romans 8.18. We always quote Romans 8.28. I love that too. It fits here too. God works all things together for the good. For those who love him are the call to quarter his purpose. Amen. So I might as well quote that as well. But listen to Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings, Paul writes, of this present time, and Paul suffered a lot. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that awesome? 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes this. Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For the momentary, it's temporary, guys, it's temporary. The momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Can't even compare what we got compared to what we're going through now, what we got going in the future, amen? While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I love it. I love it. So, Tom Witt told me, look at that clock. It's synchronized to the satellite. It's 828. Ooh, it was 828. That's perfect. Now it's 829, so I only have a minute. I'll just say this. You know what the most powerful thing you could say to an atheist about God allowing suffering is that God himself became a man and entered into our time space continuum, entered into our suffering. But then he even went to the cross and suffered the worst possible death that anybody could possibly die and suffered more than anybody so he could alleviate our suffering and partake of our suffering so we could be forgiven of our sins and so we could have eternal life. Amen. You know who said, Bart Ehrman, you know what Bart Ehrman said? He goes, he admitted that that's a powerful argument, that Christ entered into our suffering and the cross. He admitted that much. I hope you benefit from Christ's suffering the cross because he suffered in your place so you could have eternal life. He died, paid for your sins so you could be forgiven and go to heaven and be with him forever. So I encourage you to make that choice and turn from your rebellion against him and embrace Christ and what he did for you on the cross so you may have eternal life, amen. Praise God. The answer to evil and the, how we solve the problem of evil is not us. Jesus solved the problem of evil through the cross and his glorious resurrection. Amen. Let's keep trusting him. And we will one day be with him in an eternal state of bliss forevermore. Amen. Praise the Lord.